0: Hello,
1: everyone, and welcome to another fabulous episode of The Lee Show Podcast. I'm here with an exciting guest this week, Jennifer Schulp. Jennifer works for the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C., and uh, I have this like, long-term fascination with, with Cato that we can talk about later, uh, but Jennifer focuses her research and her work on the regulation of financial markets and cryptocurrency. She is an expert in the space. She's testified in front of Congress multiple times. And uh, we met at a conference a couple of weeks ago and had a, a lovely chat. And um, you know, I'm excited to have you here on the show to, to talk more about this. So Jennifer, thanks for being here. Um, did I miss some high points in your bio that maybe you could uh, you could fill in about yourself and, and the work that you do?
0: Uh, sure. And thanks so much for having me on, Lee. It was great to meet you a couple weeks ago, and I'm excited to talk today. Um, I think for my bio, you hit the high points. I think it makes sense to kind of throw in a little bit about where I've come from to give a little bit of background on why I do financial regulation now. Um, I've been at the Cato Institute for about three years, and before that, I spent a significant amount of time in the enforcement department at the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, um, also known as FINRA, um, mostly because Financial Industry Regulatory Authority is a really long name. Um, and that is the self-regulatory organization that regulates broker-dealers in the United States. And my role as an enforcement attorney was to enforce the rules that broker-dealers needed to abide by. Um, Did that for a long time. Enjoyed it. Um, I came to there from being a private practice litigator, so I, I thought it was great to do investigations and to bring actions against people for violating the rules. Um, But over time, I started to get frustrated because my job was to be someone who enforced a rule, but not really got to ask whether the rule made any sense or whether the rule was protecting anyone, um, whether the rule was something that should be on the books. And I got interested in thinking much more about the bigger picture and thinking about the way the rules should be instead of the way the rules are um which is how I found myself at Cato where I now spend a lot more time thinking about the way the rules that govern our financial markets should be rather than thinking about enforcing them the way that they are
1: So if if we were to take your experience at Finra and and now at Cato can we talk about the structure of a regulatory agency and maybe from the perspective of the folks who work at an agency they need stuff to keep them busy and they want to constantly be expanding their domain and their addressable market. And so is there mission creep at any of these regulators where they say, wait, I want... You know what? Crypto is a brand new thing. I want crypto in my purview because then I can hire 40 more attorneys to cover the crypto industry. And then suddenly I become more relevant. The, the same concept of saying like uh, a, a general always wants us at war because he's a lot more relevant when we're at war and he's got a lot more soldiers under his command when we're at war. Is, is there anything like that in financial regulation? And I'm not asking you to besmirch any particular agency unless you, you want to. That's always interesting. But um, do you see anything like like that concept occurring here?
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think that the kind of maxim in business that if you're not growing, you're you're dying or you're shrinking is absolutely applicable to the same mindset in regulatory agencies. Um, I'm happy to go ahead and besmirch um, because uh, the, the SEC has been, I'll say, particularly guilty of this lately. Um, Well, it has been simultaneously, let's say, if you look at the SEC's kind of budget over the past 10 years, the budget hasn't been growing. In some ways, it's been shrinking and they've been asking for more and more money. But if you look at their budget requests, you see them saying, well, we've taken on this new thing and we need more money in order to, to grow. We need more people in order to enforce that new thing. Some of that's a natural tendency, and we kind of need to recognize that that's going to happen with government, just like it's going to happen uh, as companies grow, as as generals want more soldiers under their command. So we need to to think about that. But the SEC has been really bad about this as of late in kind of steering itself into places where there is kind of obvious jurisdictional grab. You mentioned crypto. That's one of them.
1: Um, I, I like that term, by the way, "jurisdictional grab." That's a really interesting <laughs> term. So I, I want to like maybe we can come back to that later. But it's a it's a great term. I like that.
0: Yeah, I I'm happy to come back to it because I think the SEC is particularly bad on this front. But when when an agency like the SEC has been confronted with something like crypto, um, which you know for for all I think understandable, if you look at crypto. It doesn't neatly fit into any bucket. You can make arguments about whether it fits into the world as a security, whether it's a currency, whether it's a commodity, whether it's property. But there's not an obvious answer that, yes, you look at crypto and it's all a security. But what you hear is the SEC saying, yes, you look at crypto and it's all a security. A lot of that is jurisdictional posturing. Um, They don't want to give up any potential uh, new area to their friends at the CFTC, to the Commodities Future Trading Commission. Um, They don't want to admit that they don't have authority there. So we've seen it not just in crypto, though. We've seen it when we're talking about the SEC's proposed climate risk disclosure rule, too. The SEC unquestionably has the authority to allow – to require public companies to make disclosures. Um, That's the case. I'm not going to fight with that. And the SEC already requires public companies to make an awful lot of disclosures. But last – I think it was May – I think it was May of 2022 when the. Sorry, I'm going to get the dates wrong on that. Last year, we'll just say last year, when the SEC put out its proposal on climate risk disclosures that public companies would have to make under the rule. That goes a little bit beyond, in fact, quite a bit beyond what the SEC generally asks for public companies to disclose. And it looks an awful lot like the SEC is trying to be a bit of an environmental regulator, um, trying to require companies to disclose their greenhouse gas emissions um, in detail. Looks a lot different from requiring companies to disclose things about their financials. So we're seeing that jurisdictional gap. The regulator
1: as maybe captured by... A particular political crowd, the ESG crowd, there's it's it's certainly regulatory mission creep and and the territory grab is kind of what it feels like there.
0: Yeah. And people have started referring to the SEC kind of as a meta regulator. Um, I don't know if you, Do you read I Matt Levine v- stuff. <laughs>
1: He's done a ton of writing, which is, I think, very pejorative towards the sec as a regulator and and it's interesting the stuff that he he he's talked about in 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 all the areas even i mean there's there's academic research showing that enforcement actions and settlements increase right at the end of the fiscal year because they want to show that they collected money under their budget i mean it's it's you know it, it raises an interesting question which is Uh, And I'm going to sort of like test out your, your, you work for a libertarian think tank is how I would describe Cato, right? So I'm going to test out your, your libertarian chops here. Is this the creep of the administrative state and what, what is the sort of ideal uh, capacity of the administrative state that you would want to see?
0: So, that is definitely going to test my libertarian chops, so I, and i'm you. by
1: the way, I'm not asking like for <laughs> a a am i am more curious, your own personal experience. I'm not like what does sudden philosopher say about this? That wasn't the angle I was going for oh, here no,
0: and you're not going to get a philosopher answer out of me um, it definitely shows the problems with the amount of power that's concentrated in the administrative state. Um, The SEC has broad authorities. Um, Congress gave the SEC an awful lot of power in the 33 and 34 acts at the birth of the administrative state. Um, The theories at that time were, well, we can give these agencies a lot of power because they're going to be full of experts. And those experts are going to be able to figure out exactly how to regulate, and they're going to do it in kind of a nonpartisan, bureaucratic way, and they should just be allowed to go forth and conquer. Major query as to whether that is in line with our Constitution in the first place, that that delegation of authority, um, I don't think it is. Um, Although you have to really sit down and talk about what does each statute say and how did Congress give the authority to really have a true discussion about that angle. But the growth here of the SEC being able to look in these statutes for a, a broad grant of authority and then... Make its own regulatory world without Congress weighing in, Um, without Congress or without representative government saying this is how regulation should happen is a real problem um we've seen that the yes, the supreme court has started weighing in much more heavily on this uh, we get deep into the legal issues here but with the the major questions doctrine i'm not sure if that's is that something you've been following at all
1: <laughs> absolutely yeah i i try to say i mean i'm not a an academic but i try to stay as close to these topics as i can
0: yeah so where Congress has kind of given a broad grant of authority The the Supreme Court has held that agencies can't just assume that that means that Congress allowed them to regulate in a brand new space where it wasn't originally contemplated. Um, the case that came up, originally with this in the Supreme Court was an EPA case, but I would say kind of the topic du jour in securities law circles is where is the SEC violating that doctrine as well? Um, we've seen the issue raised a lot in crypto. Um, and I think there's a good argument there that the SEC trying to stretch 1933 and 1934 laws is not necessarily what Congress had in mind. And I think that that's backed up by the fact that Congress right now is trying to work on a regulatory framework for crypto, um, kind of you know, signaling pretty strongly to the SEC that this is not settled by the statutes. Um, but the SEC is kind of running headlong into that.
1: Right, they're saying it is settled, and we have the authority, and we can make all the rules. And this isn't a congressional or legislative concept that deserves legislative attention. I guess maybe we could take a, a quick step back for a second. Um, why and 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 why is Bitcoin theoretically treated differently? From a securities law perspective, than say Ethereum or other crypto currencies? Why does Bitcoin maybe merit treatment by the CFTC, while maybe another crypto asset does not? And where do, where would you draw the line? Like, what's the what's the theory behind that? And where would you draw the line as being the the divider there?
0: Sure. And let me start with that with kind of the SEC's view on this. Um, And then we'll get to where I draw the line. Um, Because where I draw the line and the SEC's spoken view on it is probably not all that far apart. Um, But what the SEC is doing in practice is a little bit different. Um, So the SEC decides whether something like a cryptocurrency is a security, mostly by looking at this 1950s Supreme Court opinion called Howey. And those that have been following this have heard ad nauseum about the Howey test. And the Howey test determines whether or not something is an investment contract. I say unhelpfully, the securities laws in the 1930s said an investment contract is a security and then didn't define what the heck an investment contract is. And I'll tell you, that's not something that has an obvious definition. Um, and there's actually a lot of things in the securities laws, the, the 30-some-odd things that they list as securities. A lot of them don't have obvious definitions. So so thanks, 1930s Congress, for, for a lot of help on that front. But then in the 1950s, the Supreme Court had a case called Howie, and it laid out essentially four things that need to be present for something to be considered an investment contract. And that is the investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profits based on the efforts of others. Um, Sounds pretty simple. Applying it is not always as simple. Um, because there's a lot of questions about what does efforts mean? What is a common enterprise? But when we talk about crypto, it normally comes down to this efforts of others concept. Um, When you think about the securities generally, you're trying to make money off of something that someone else is doing. And the securities laws are there to protect an investor who doesn't have as much information about the company's activities as the company's managers or right. the company. Buy a sh- I mean, in yeah. a
1: simple sense, you buy a share in a company, you're not privy to what's going on day to day. And so there's a layer of protection so that the executives running the company don't just run amok at the expense of that shareholder who is sort of kept in the dark, right? That's that's the concept.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and Bitcoin doesn't have someone that has that level of information. Um, Bitcoin is completely, I would say, decentralized, where there isn't really a manager that has more information about how Bitcoin operates than anyone who's using Bitcoin. And that's where the SEC has felt comfortable saying that, OK, fine, Bitcoin is not a security. So the CFTC would have the ability to, say, regulate Bitcoin in as much as the CFTC regulates commodities. We talk about the CFTC regulating commodities, but that's not really what it does. The CFTC has the authority to regulate um, futures and derivatives on commodities And through that authority has some ability to deal with kind of fraud in the underlying commodities market itself. And in fact, this is one of the big debates on Capitol Hill is whether the CFTC should be given the authority to regulate Bitcoin directly rather than what they're doing indirectly right now. I think this concept of decentralization is the right touch point for whether or not the securities laws should apply. but the SEC, other than Bitcoin, has been unwilling to admit that there is a such thing as decentralization in any other cryptocurrency.
1: Does that include um, Ethereum? They won't admit that, that
0: includes that. Ethereum. They will not admit that Ethereum is decentralized, which I think is crazy.
1: so if you <laughs> if you uh build something If you build a project on the rails of ethereum you might argue that like you could be someone who owns some ethereum and then you build a project using the ethereum rails that uh you benefit as i guess as ethereum increases its usage you benefit because the price of ethereum should go up and I don't know. I'm trying to think about like how that could yeah, work. Yeah, and
0: network effects and, and other right. things on that front.
1: But I guess those network effects are clearer when we're talking about some other cryptocurrency that's issued by a company for that specific purpose, by like a private company. Is that the idea? That's the distinction?
0: That's the distinction, although I would say on... The underlying Ethereum, the SEC has not really made an argument as to why Ethereum itself isn't decentralized. I think there's a different question that you have to confront when you're dealing with other tokens as to whether or not those tokens are being sold to raise money for a project, um, whether those tokens are being sold where there is someone who's making promises about how the project's going to turn out. Um, we put out a paper a while ago suggesting that the, you know Congress really needs to come in and clarify this decentralization point to make clear that Howey does not apply where there is not a managerial body that's making those types of promises. Um, I think the SEC could probably get there by reading Howey. It's clear that the SEC is not getting there, though.
1: It, is there a political... Split in Congress where it's like the Republicans want this framework and the Democrats want a different framework? Does that split exist in crypto the way there might be a a partisan split on other issues? And if so, like what is that split?
0: So I don't think the split is as clear as it is on some other issues um i think that's in part because there really shouldn't be a split this shouldn't be a partisan issue um it should be a question of clarifying laws that we have and making making some clear rules of the road um and there can be partisan debates about where how exactly you do that but that's not where we're at we have camps of folks in congress who have suggestions for how we should create a regulatory framework, and those differ, but they don't necessarily differ on a partisan basis. Some of the the biggest proposals out there are bipartisan. Um, Senator Senator L- Senators Lummis and Gillibrand. That's a bipartisan proposal. Um, the pieces that pieces of legislation that passed out of the House. Financial Services Committee had some bipartisan support, um, even though they were Republican-sponsored legislation initially. Um, So you've got one camp that's working on legislation to make a change that has Republicans and Democrats in it. And you have another camp that's not proposing different ways to approach the same problem. They refuse to recognize that there is a problem, and think that the SEC and existing laws are either clear or that they're not clear, and that's okay because we'd much rather just drive this business out of the U.S., period. We we don't want it here.
1: That's an interesting take, right? There's one, you might say, the benefit of keeping the laws vague is that it allows you to regulate whatever you want and interpret it however you want, right? You're You're turning the laws into some form of like uh, uh, a mystical Torah study or something. That's one take on it. The other take is we want to keep it vague so that nobody wants to do anything here because they're discouraged from it because they feel like there's regulatory risk. And those are really different approaches, both of which you know encourage you to keep the rules vague. but it, it's it's interesting. So if they drive this out, of the US then where is the natural home i'm not just talking about for tightly regulated crypto payments where you know the government wants to watch everything you're doing kind of stuff right mm-hmm. what is the natural home for crypto freedom where, you know, it's like, hey, we can develop and the government's going to make clear rules and and real guardrails. It doesn't feel like that's in Western Europe. So like where where is that natural home?
0: I think we'll have to see over time. Western Europe has been putting down more clear rules than we have doesn't mean that it's going to be, attract the type of business that they are interested in attracting, um, in part because the EU's tech regulation over generally has, has not been a favorite. Yeah, so I mean, look at we, the we, fact that history, every time you go to
1: a website, you have to click allow cookies, right? That tells you yeah. that they're not they're not doing everything right, clearly.
0: <laughs> right. So if you look at history, I think, if I were to come out and say that, you know, France is going to be absolutely the next crypto hub, I think just history would would belie that. But we've seen a lot of regulation coming out of Asia, um, Singapore, Japan, and these are not necessarily light touch regulatory states, but there's a lot of interest in those countries in making rules of the road that are clear to follow. So there's a trade-off for companies that want to do business. Um, heavier touch regulation is harder for companies to do business, but knowing what that regulation is takes more risk off their plate as well. So really, it's looking for the sweet spot um, to determine where that balance is going to be right for the... For where this will naturally flow to, if the United States is off the table,
1: I mean, I, take- I sort of have a, like a theory that one of the reasons why all the trillion-dollar companies are in the U.S. right—Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Amazon—like all all the companies that have been engines of equity market growth, all the companies that have been massive innovators over the past 20 years, there's a reason why they're all American companies. And I think some of that starts with our education system and some of that continues with our regulatory system. And both of those go hand in hand with each other in terms of what type of entrepreneurship they encourage and how much how much risk taking they encourage how like there's a reason why those things are happening in the u s and they're not happening in europe and so every time I see some you know forecaster who says well u s economic growth is like three percent and European economic growth is only uh, a half a percent, and so there's going to be some reversion to the mean here and Europe is going to outperform over the next 10 years. I'm like, nope, That you're ignoring the fact that there are structural differences. So this is not going to be reversion to the mean. This is permanent problems where Europe is going to suffer from a lack of productivity growth and economic growth for a long time to come until they can lighten some of that burden. So it makes me, of course, very skeptical of the idea that like, you know, the next round of trillion dollar companies are going to say, yeah, we're going to plant our stake in Paris or something." like it just seems so it seems so improbable to me. And I, I could be wrong, but just I, I'm 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 just uh, forecasting here and, and predicting as best I can.
0: No, and I predict as best as I can as well. And I think that's right. Um, I think history shows us that Europe is probably not going to be at the forefront here. But I think what's been interesting is that the European conversation on digital assets, um, the regulatory conversation has kind of recognized some of that failure. Doesn't mean that they're regulating in a way that is necessarily hands off, but a lot of the conversation has been look, we don't have those trillion-dollar companies. And one of the reasons we don't have them in Europe, as you noted, is that the U.S. took a very different regulatory tack towards the Internet and technological development in the 90s and early 2000s than Europe did. And there's at least some political interest in the EU to not repeat that same mistake with digitization of, say, value, um, with digital assets, with digital money. Whether that happens remains to be seen. And I'm not sure that MICA really, MICA, the EU's European Markets and Crypto Assets Regulation, really reflects that political conversation wholly. Um, I think it's still much more heavy handed than a conversation that that started with, hey, the US was hands off, maybe we should be hands off too, (laughs) would ultimately turn out to be. But I think there's a little bit of progress there. And I think if I were forecasting, I would say that some of the Asian regulatory frameworks on this are probably more likely to attract some of that some of that big business than than the european ones are and and in, in europe you're also still dealing with the rest of the regulatory apparatus that hasn't changed gdpr right, is a mess. It's a mess. the whole mm-hmm. heavy-handed approach there generally just because you have a crypto markets regulation that might be a little bit more lighter touch doesn't do away with the rest of the regulations that those companies will have to deal with
1: if if i were to think about uh, the process of, and we're not going to get into the technical aspects of it here, both because my listeners don't care or they know what this about this. But if we were going to get into the process of um, staking and proof of work versus proof of stake, and think about the way that Bitcoin is um, created, it uses a lot of electricity. The way that the entire Bitcoin network works uses a lot of electricity. And one idea that I've thought about a lot is, if you set up a facility in the middle of nowhere with a lot of sunshine, and you have a whole array of um, solar panels providing electricity, you're capturing electricity from the sun that would otherwise be lost, right? Otherwise it's hitting the rock and doing nothing. You take that electricity, and use it to power all of the GPUs that are working for you in your Bitcoin mine, and you're creating value out of electricity that otherwise would not exist, you might almost think about Bitcoin as a store of value for electricity, right? And then that that Bitcoin becomes fungible. You can send it somewhere else where they can pay to create electricity at another point in time or pay for something else. Or is that is that the right way to think about Bitcoin, that it's a store of value for electricity and a way of moving electricity until we have superconductors. Is Bitcoin the most efficient way to move electricity from places with a lot of solar energy or other types of energy that would otherwise be lost?
0: You know, I have not put a lot of thought to that. Um, I don't know if I say I'd have to think a lot more about whether the analogy or whether that kind of framework works for me. What I think is interesting in the kind of Bitcoin energy usage debate is that there's a debate, and I think there's there's good arguments on both sides as to how people could view. Bitcoin's energy usage. What we ultimately, and, and I think it's also interesting that Bitcoin is one model of doing this. We, we have proof of right, stake. There state, are, other, there model, are yeah. other consensus totally. mechanisms that blockchains use now, and there are possibilities to develop new consensus mechanisms in the future. Um, and I think what's vital in kind of the, the conversation that gets lost so much when we start debating does Bitcoin use too much electricity? Is that it really should be the consumer's choice about which blockchain they want to use? If they find personally that Bitcoin uses energy in a way they're uncomfortable with, then they will move their their usage to a different blockchain. And there, right, then you can
1: use Ethereum or some other proof of you state. Use Ethereum, model, you can use something right.
0: else, and this should be fought out in the marketplace at the end of the day, um, and that it's not a question for the regulators to decide Bitcoin's use is as a store of electricity, or Bitcoin's lack of use is because it uses too much electricity. Um, This should really be choices that are made by people who are going to use the networks themselves as to what they think are the correct properties of the network and the correct um, effects that the network has on society, the environment, however they want to see it themselves.
1: So uh, did you ever read a book called The Bitcoin Standard?
0: I have not. Tell me um, about it.
1: The Bitcoin Standard was the first book that when I started like learning about crypto, that was the first book that someone told me that I should read. And it it's really like a I mean, it, it's a, a very uh, slanted primer on Bitcoin and on fractional reserve banking. And it just, you know, you could almost read it as propaganda, but, but very well-written and well-publicized propaganda against the idea of fractional reserve banking and why Bitcoin is a superior model because it's like the new gold standard. That's why it's called the Bitcoin standard. It's the new gold standard. And it eliminates the notion of fractional reserve banking. And I might argue that fractional reserve banking has been the engine or one of the engines and enablers of economic growth in the United States and around the world for like the last 70 years and and certainly since the early 70s. And so I would argue that had we not had fractional reserve banking economic growth would have been dramatically lower. Standards of living would have been dramatically lower. So I'm not sure that advocating for a return to that, as much as you might make it sound bad, I'm not sure advocating for a return to that is a great idea. But it raised for me this interesting notion, which is I notice that the idea of crypto seems to resonate much more with my more right wing or conservative friends. And it seems to be much more rejected by my more left wing and progressive friends. And it makes me wonder is the entire notion of fractional reserve banking, is that like a left wing idea? And having, you know, one to one banking, is that like. Having 100% reserves, is that an inherently right wing or conservative idea? Is this a topic that you've ever explored or or thought about? Because it's something that I keep, I I know I'm I'm sort of rambling here, but I'm like trying to put into words this, this question and this notion that's been bubbling around in my mind for a while.
0: You know, I haven't thought about it in those terms before, but I think you're right that there's something that kind of resonates on the right that. You know, repels the left about crypto. I tend to put it in different terms, um, where it's kind of a from a basic idea, and I don't think this applies necessarily across the board. But the and maybe this this ties in with fractional reserve banking because it's, it's the basic distrust of government that and the distrust of of the government to be able to keep the currency itself stable. Um, which ties into the fractional reserve banking concept. So maybe there's something in there, but I, I tend to think of it much more as a conservatives or the right tend to be more Bitcoin or crypto friendly because it is outside of government control. The left tends to be more suspicious because it's looking to undermine that government control. But I don't think that captures the whole picture of crypto correctly. Um, And I think it's something that gets missed in the debate and gets missed in the partisanship on this, Um, which I said didn't exist before. And I'll say I still don't think really exists, but but you can make a case that I think a lot of them don't
1: care enough for it to become a partisan issue. Right. right? There's like only a handful of. Uh, Of congressional members who, who, who give a shit about this, right?
0: Yeah. And I think it's also the control issue is also not necessarily a right left issue in the same way that you would have seen, I don't know, we'll say 20 or 30 years ago. There's, there's a lot more on the right that is interested in more governmental control over certain aspects of society these days. So your traditional right-left Republican-Democrat breakdown on this might not hold in 2023. There was a great piece that I read a couple of months ago, um, Sheila Warren, who's the head of the Crypto Council for Innovation, put out a, a piece called The Progressive's Case for Crypto. Um, and if you're kind of interested in a left case for crypto and why the breakdown on that I just said about control on the left and right shouldn't apply, I think it's worth a read because it, it talks a lot about kind of your traditional left ideas, of financial inclusion Um, protection of individual civil liberties that I won't say aren't important on the right, and certainly folks on the right champion those, but that tends to be a much more central position on a lot of left platforms. And I mean, if you think about
1: crypto and the benefit it provides for remittances and helping the undocumented, the unbanked, like there's there's a lot here that should naturally appeal to progressives, I would think.
0: I think so too, which is why I think it goes back to there's not a real good right-left divide on this issue. It should really be something that the right and the left can get together on to at least have a basic framework that works. Um, You, of course, might have people that fall outside of that bipartisan coalition. But there's not, say, control doesn't fully answer it as to whether it should be left or right. Inclusion doesn't fully answer it as to whether it should be left or right. We really, it, it straddles a lot of lines here. Uh, and I would say, I don't think fractional reserve banking makes it left or right.
1: I know ESG is a topic that's within your sort of research purview as well. I've done podcasts in the past about ESG. I've written extensively about ESG, and my take on the concept infuriates just about everybody who listens to me because my view on it is I think ESG is lousy branding, but I think that if you are a an index fund where you're in the um the business of owning every company and thinking about risks that are market-wide rather than company specific risks because those matter much more if you're black rock or vanguard or whoever fidelity because you're tied to the overall equity markets i'm I'm not even talking about the idea that that there's like collusion between the companies mm-hmm. I'm forget about that for a second If your business is evaluating systemic market wide existential risks, then it makes sense to focus on the environment, for example. Like, is the earth going to function in five years or 10 years or whatever? Like, that's a a meaningful risk if you're BlackRock. It's a less meaningful risk at the company specific level. And so I've always thought there's something very sensible about large index funds emphasizing that ESG framework, even if that ESG branding is really lousy and you get into all sorts of issues like one week Lockheed Martin is, you know, on the good side of ESG and the next week it's not just because they're giving weapons to Ukraine or not doing it. Like put that, I think the social side of it can be kind of stupid. But when I said that on this podcast I had a lot of people who were like, no, you're wrong. ESG is bad. It's woke. It's stupid. And then I had other people who were like, you know, no, you're wrong. ESG is critical because we need the companies doing Black Lives Matter or whatever. And so I'm curious where your research gets you, how you think about this concept and, and if you agree with my premise or think I'm, I'm, you know, if you come down on the side of, of either of the trolls who, who want to yell at me.
0: (laughs) Well, I get plenty of trolls yelling at me on both sides for my position too. So, so some solidarity in, in that. Um, I tend to look at it from a little bit more of a micro perspective, I think, than you have. Um, and I agree that ESG is terrible branding um, in fact, we don't even know what people are talking about when they talk about ESG because it covers so many different potential investment strategies or corporate governance strat or corporate management strategies that that the term itself is meaningless and allows us to have a public debate where all we do is talk past each other. Um, And then you can just yell about woke, anti-woke until you're blue in the face. And we've gotten nowhere other than everyone's a little bit more angry. So in talking about ESG, I like to at least initially distinguish between impact investing um, or what can be known as values ESG and value ESG, which is using ESG to determine material risks to a company's financial health. And I treat those two things pretty differently. The first, let's go back to, let's start with value, um, which is material risks, and I think gets into your bigger picture about index funds. And when we look at ESG from the value standpoint, it's not new. It's something that we've always done, which is try to figure out what risks are material to a company's financial health. And people that are good at this have never limited themselves to P&L on a on a spreadsheet. They've thought about the bigger picture. And what will affect a company's profits um, or losses in the future? For some companies, that's very obviously environmental impacts. Um, you'd be crazy to think that a company that I say Exxon doesn't have exposure on environmental topics. I think it's a lot harder to make the argument on some social topics. Um, the evidence is not as good, but ultimately this will come out in the wash. If you guess wrong and it's not material to a company's financial impact, you've, you've either made a bad investment or you've wasted an awful lot of money trying to do this analysis and you'll move away from it in the future. Um, the idea that kind of this expected value of a company or a company's fundamentals is something that's set in stone is I think something that I think a lot of people accept and it's just not true. This of course is all not. it's a dynamic.
1: Theory. It's all dynamic, right?
0: It's all dynamic. It's all theories. It's all about trying to figure out the best way to do these valuations and to think about it. So ESG is value. Right. Think about it.
1: I mean, I had so many finance classes in undergrad and in, in, business school where they're like you have to do a discounted cash flow model for every company you analyze that's the only way to do it and then like you get to the real world and nobody does a discounted cash flow model at all
0: yeah i'll say it drove me to, to take it on the tangent it drove me nuts two years ago when we had gamestop and all of the meme stocks and and all of the reporting was well it is diverted from the company's fundamental value that shows that, uh, what whatever the Right, there is the no there is, is no like
1: is. gold standard fundamental value that's like somebody knows it and it's it's that's locked in a room somewhere and then the rest of the world is diverting from that. That doesn't make any sense at all. No.
0: So ESG is value is something that isn't new and shouldn't be controversial and shouldn't be banned, prevented, anything else. So some folks are going to be wrong in their valuations. Some folks are going to be right. And we'll come to a new equilibrium in the theory there, and it will be what it is. ESG is values, is also not new, but for different reasons. So ESG is is, values, is about trying to use your money to show your value, to have a value.
1: Right. You're trying to impose social values and saying my dollars talk, right? And it's in a sense it's not really any different than the Huntsman family or Mark Rowan who both donate a lot of money to My Alma Mater UPenn saying oh the president of the school didn't write a good letter about uh, Israel and Gaza and so i'm going to stop donating money right, right
0: you're the saying
1: <laughs> Yeah my money talks <laughs> and it my money walks and and then they pull their donations It's kind of the same thing, but from an investing perspective then, right?
0: Yes. And it's not new. We've been doing this for – people have been doing this for a long time. The divestments in the 1980s against South Africa on on the part of apartheid. Um, Using your money to talk is not new and is something that people should absolutely have the right to be able to do in their own investing. Um, and that asset managers should be able to do as long as they're upfront with their investors about the fact that that's what they're doing because they have a duty to their investors to invest the money as the investors wanted it to be invested. Where we get into danger with this values ESG is where you have governments stepping in and trying to impose those values through investing. So we talked earlier about the SEC's climate risk disclosure rules. I don't have any issue at all with the SEC saying that companies need to disclose material climate risks. But that's not what the SEC, despite what it claims, is doing with those potential rules. Those rules are much more detailed. They say, to simplify it, look a lot like naming and shaming um saying if you are a big greenhouse gas producer you better tell the whole world so that these environmental activists can make sure that they're going to protest you um right. and, and, and there's a there's a taking
1: sides component of that yes. where i think one thing that we've learned over the past few years from my perspective and i'm i'm not sure this is a, a universal truth but my my view is that a lot of people had extremely high degree of certainty in their beliefs, in their cultural beliefs, in their social and and political beliefs, and turned out to be very wrong. And so uh, when you let those folks run the show where they've got 100% almost religious fervence and, and um, certainty in their beliefs, and they're running the show and driving economic policy And then it turns out they're wrong about a thing, you end up with really lousy policies. And, um, you know, that's the that's the generous explanation for why Germany shut down all of their nuclear power plants. Right. Was that there were a lot of environmentalists who were adamant that the best thing for the environment was for Germany to shut down its nuclear power plants and then of course you know we know now that like the the that was the worst thing for germany that and that's that's the generous explanation right that's not even getting into the like useful idiots and that the whole thing was like a psyop we're not even going to go there right now i've done other podcasts about that <laughs> but just like i think that's the danger of allowing the the rabble-rousing masses to Uh, dictate economic and corporate policy is that, like, they're not right a lot of the time.
0: Well, and I think there's a different level of danger here in kind of the abstraction, because it's not just direct environmental policy. It's environmental policy through the financial system, through the financial system. So, A, you can question whether that's even effective. So are we just moving money through in ways that we think that are going to save the environment and it's not actually going to do anything for the environment? That's one. But it is also getting in the way of allowing the people, the market, to make the decisions about how to meet those larger societal goals And the market gives the rabble rousers a voice. It just doesn't give them the only voice. And the problem is that when we start using the markets this way um, to direct capital flows based on policy decisions of those in charge, we, A, take away the power of the markets, but B, we open it up to a flip the next time the government. Changes hands. So, anyone that thinks that this is limited right now to environmental policy and won't suddenly become companies needing to disclose their healthcare coverage for abortion benefits (laughs) if uh, the other party becomes in charge is not seeing the whole picture. So, the danger of putting this political dimension on how we want to allow capital to move is a danger on both sides of the coin. And that's a a big problem. We've seen it on ESG already. So we have at the federal level, the Democrats running the administrative agencies and looking towards pro-ESG policies. We've seen state governments who are Republican controlled looking at anti-ESG policies, saying that if you're a a bank and you've said you don't like fossil fuels, you're not allowed to do business in my state because we love fossil fuels here. And that gets in the way of the markets functioning. It's ultimately going to cost the taxpayers money. (laughs) Um, And it hurts the ability of the capital flows to be that economic engine that takes into account the opinions of the masses about how we should be confronting new challenges.
1: I, I think there is the last episode of the podcast I did was uh, all about Israel and Gaza. And I have very, very strong views about that, which um, I we could talk at length about that. But the one of the things I've noticed is that the folks who are Coming down very firmly of like I support Hamas and I support Gaza and I support they're the they're sort of like the dumbest and most mentally ill among us and um you know it my instinct is to say like just ignore them they have no impact on policy they have no impact on what actually happens right because I I see the Senate. Voted ninety-seven to zero to support Israel, even as like every like you know pink-haired gender studies major at an Ivy League school is coming down of like no no it we we can't support Israel. So they ha- sort of in a sense have no impact on policy. On the other hand, uh, I do think the noise matters. I don't think you can dismiss it that readily. And so whether it is in ESG whether it is in forcing companies to make uneconomic decisions because of political and social pressure like it the pressure matters it doesn't it's not zero and i think it really matters and i think we have to pay attention to it so um i i think it is a reasonable concept to say like companies should evaluate and investors should evaluate what matters to a business and what matters to its worth but I, I don't love the idea of more government regulation requiring it one way or another. And, and back to what we started talking about, that feels a little bit like mission creep by the regulators in one way or the other, whether you're demanding it or forbidding it. It feels like mission creep.
0: It is mission creep. And I don't think you should be demanding it or, or forbidding it. Um, I think kind of go back to what you were just saying, which is whether you want a company to weigh in on a political issue or you want the company to stay silent, it's in the investor's or the consumer's control whether they are supporting that action at the end of the day. Um, You didn't like Chick-fil-A's stance on certain things. People stopped going to Chick-fil-A. Apparently, that must have had enough of an economic impact on Chick-fil-A to have changed some of their views. Um, that's the the feedback mechanism that we have for, say, changing company behavior is not buying the company's products or not right. giving the company I mean, your the money thing, to invest after in companies
1: After 9-11, I, I remember like the the sort of – I had this paleoconservative professor in college and um, he, he – by the way, no one uses that term anymore. But he um <laughs> he he said, Well, it it's reasonable that uh the people of Afghanistan, it's reasonable that the Taliban were mad at us because there's a McDonald's in Kabul. And so of course they were upset that we're like imposing our values on them or something. And I, I said to him, But isn't that the beauty of the free market, right? If they don't like McDonald's, don't eat at mcdonald's and then mcdonald's will go out of business and and you don't need an in an, an edict and you don't need a war over this like just don't if you don't like it don't eat there and if people are eating there it shows you that they do like it and and i remember him sort of scratching his head and going like huh wow yeah it's a good point um l- let me ask let's just switch gears for a second um and talk about one other topic which is it seems to me like the notion of payment for order flow is not such an inherently bad or dangerous thing. In fact, it, my instinct, and I am not a true expert, but my instinct is that payment for order flow is net positive and good for retail investors. It's good for the little guy. It's a sensible uh, concept, and yet the SEC seems determined to regulate it away and congress seems to hate it cuz it it smells bad to them i'm sure you've spoken to the regulators on this quite a bit i'm sure like do you think they have a sensible point of view on this do you think there are some in government who are like no actually this is good we should keep it like what's what's the sort of climate around payment for order flow right now
0: So, I mean, the SEC is basically out to end it. Um, And there are, say, folks in Congress, and heck, I mean, the SEC in the early 2000s, the last time they looked at it in any seriousness, said that it, it was something that existed. It presented a potential conflict of interest. And the way to deal with it is to focus on whether that conflict of interest was real and whether it was causing anyone any harm. That's not what the current SEC is doing, although the current SEC's plans on this don't actually ban payment for order flow. They just make it really hard to do. Um, So there's something interesting to be said about the fact that they're just not, even in the the anti-payment for order flow space, they're not willing to just outrightly ban it. And I think one of the reasons they don't want to do that is because there is a... Large contingent of retail investors who recognize that it has been good for a lot of retail investors, um, and there's very little. You, you could argue that like zero literature.
1: commission trading has been really good for a lot oh, of folks.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, the academic literature generally does not support the idea that payment for order flow is. Sending really worse execution quality to individual investors. Um, and the SEC doesn't, they make that argument in their market structure proposals, but they're attacking payment for order flow on a whole ton of different uh, dimensions. We now have the SEC's proposed rule about predictive data analytics, um, which they've Both called their AI rule and their rule that's in response to GameStop to prevent the gamification of trading. So it's another attack on zero commission trading, with this idea that that investors, individual investors, are far too stupid to understand that they need to be protected from themselves. Right? That's the idea Um, that if they trade a lot, that they might make bad decisions, um, and that trading a lot might not be great for them. But again, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that individual investors are falling prey to this Um, and that all of this zero commission trading, digital accessibility, fractional share purchases, all of these new innovative, digitally accessible means of getting into the market have been great for retail investors and not just great for retail investors who were already in the market. Um, we have seen a massive influx of new retail investors and those new retail investors are younger, (laughs) less wealthy, and more racially diverse than investors that have previously been in the market, which should be an outcome that the SEC is like sending up balloons over. This is some, this is a great, great outcome. And payment for order flow has helped support that. Um, I am in favor of getting information to investors so that they can make decisions about whether payment for order flow is something that works for them, (laughs) whether the execution quality that they're getting, if that's something that they care about, is up to their standards. Um, The SEC did propose a rule on that front, um, along with all of their massive, massive changes to the equity markets. Um, And of course, they didn't, actually figure out how all of that would work together um, and talk about the costs and benefits together, which is a whole nother story about what the SEC is doing poorly right now. But uh, kind of, you know, on the down low, calling it the SEC's war on retail trading, um, because it is. There's been so many rule proposals that they've thrown out there that would raise the barriers to individuals being able to have access to the markets. That it's just a shame. We've seen members of Congress pushing back on this. Um, I don't think that the full suite of market structure proposals that the SEC made are going to be implemented in full. I think some of that is probably going to be left on the drawing room floor. What? I'm not sure. But there's been a lot of pushback. Um, There's also been a lot of pushback to this new predictive data analytics rule which has an absurdly broad sweep and is completely unworkable. I mean, I think it's a shame that anything here that will make it more difficult for people to have access to the markets in a form that they have found easy to use, enjoyable, and has helped them to learn by doing. Is a shame. We really need to make sure that people are able to make those investments. Uh, it's the best way to grow your wealth over time. And it's really hard to learn how to do that without having access and without being there in the first place.
1: Let me ask a question, though. Are you a sports fan?
0: Uh, depends on the sport, but yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. Do you watch sports on TV? Like, yes. Ever? Okay. So I've noticed as I watch sports on TV, over the past five years that instead of, it used to be like 90% of the commercials were either for beer or pickup trucks. And now it's like 90% of the commercials are either for FanDuel or BetMGM or Caesars or whatever, one of these like various internet gambling operations. You can't watch even scripted content. You watch ESPN and all they're talking about is the spreads and the totals and everything is gambling around sports now. It didn't used to be that way. And I would guess, I don't have data, so I'm purely speculating here. I would guess that most people who have a an account with FanDuel or DraftKings who are betting on sports, they see that account value go to zero because they lose all their money, right? The, like, Las Vegas is not known as a place where most people get rich by gambling. Yeah. And so, uh, there is a part of me that recognizes that and then also feels that to the extent that whether it's Robin Hood or any other app or, or just the equity markets in general start to mimic the behavioral aspects of FanDuel and DraftKings that's not a good thing and i'm not sure it needs to be regulated away but i'm not convinced that the regulation is entirely harmful there either because i think there is a measure of like saving people from themselves that can be useful at least that's my instinct so i i i do see i do see behavior by retail investors that sort of mimics gambling behavior whether it's the growth of zero-day options, whether it is the way people are trading. And so I, I do sort of buy into the notion that some regulation could be helpful here. I just don't know what the right regulation is.
0: Yeah, we have a lot of regulation in place already. And let me get back to that. But before I get to that, I think there's maybe two points I want to make. One, we've always had speculation in the markets. It just turned out that that speculation before tended to be richer people being able to do it. Um, I'm not sure that we want the government drawing lines, determining whether you or I have enough money that we're allowed to lose some of it. Right. I mean, that's um, what they've
1: done with investing in, um, whether it's in private companies, whether it's investing in in uh, you know, being an accredited investor, and I'm not convinced that that's done a great job or done what they wanted it to do yeah. at all.
0: I think that's done a terrible job. The second point that I would make is that you kind of put up the zero-day options growth. There have been growths in certain areas here that might lead you to believe that there's a lot more gambling behavior going on. But if you look at a lot of the evidence that's kind of come out post-2020 at least about what these new investors are doing, you don't see kind of a massive rise in day trading. You don't see the type of behavior that would lead most people to think that people are treating their Robinhood accounts like a FanDuel account. We see people... When you're dealing with smaller dollar accounts, you see more people trading more often. That might be because they're taking out of their paycheck every week thirty dollars and putting it in the market, um, using it as a you know poor man's dollar cost averaging. When they're not doing it that way, they're doing it because that's when the money's become available. Um, we didn't see trading patterns like that before because richer people were making larger trades. <laughs> Um, Or going into the market in different ways. And we've also seen uh, some survey evidence and other evidence that shows that people that have joined the market through trading apps and others, the, the parts of the apps that they have valued the most have been educational resources and other things that, A, you don't have in FanDuel. But, or your educational resources, just a stats line on uh, who's going to run the most. That's right. It's it's like historically,
1: (laughs) when the Bengals play this team, then the Bengals cover the spread on Tuesdays when it's sunny out, like 42% of the time, that kind of stuff. Right. I don't know if you can call that educational.
0: (laughs) Right. But people are taking advantage of a lot of the things on these apps that we would want to see them taking advantage of to learn how to be better investors not to learn how to be better gamblers. That gets me back to the point that there's a lot of regulation in this space already. Um, If you want to trade options, you have to be approved to have an options account. Um, Whether all of the firms are doing a great job of following the rules on that is another question. But you have to have shown some level of knowledge and experience in order to take that next step into a more complicated, more risky product. In general, when we're thinking about the trading apps and kind of the user interface, we have a lot of regulations around how financial firms are allowed to communicate with the investor. They're not allowed to do things that are deceptive or misleading. They're not allowed to commit fraud, of course. But those rules can be applied to, well, did did that nudge cause the investor to do something that wasn't good for them? Um, was the financial firm in there facilitating worse decisions? that benefited the financial firm. So rather than kind of rushing headlong into, oh my goodness, we hate the confetti on Robin Hood, which was you know, all the rage in, in 2020, as if anyone was really making a trade just to see a confetti animation, we have rules that already address a lot of this. And adding a whole nother layer on that micromanages how people interact with their trading app is not that's that's even more regulatory
1: creep. Maybe, Uh, you know, I would query, I think it would be a fascinating research study to know how many or what percentage of accounts on those apps go to zero at some point in time, because somebody takes their entire principal balance and puts it into options that expire worthless a week later and they literally go to zero. I'm not talking about a loss of a few percent or they actually go to zero for their entire account. I'd be curious to know that. I think I'm, I'm less generous towards the brokers. I think they profit tremendously from options trading. It is far more lucrative than equity trading. And I think that to the extent that they allow options trading, that the, to the extent that they maybe encourage it, to the extent that they... How about this? I would guess that the brokers can implement Predictive analytics to figure out who is gambling and who is not, and who is most likely, who has the highest propensity of seeing their account go to zero. And I think the brokers could put up some guardrails to try to discourage that to help people. Never mind the regulation, I think the brokers could do that. I think they don't want to because it is very lucrative to have people go completely bust. And and I think they like that. So I, they wouldn't admit that, but I think they like that. Um, so I, I am I am extremely skeptical of the ethics of the brokers, whether it's Schwab or E-Trade or Robinhood or whoever, because I think they're profiting wildly off of a bunch of folks who are making bad decisions and, and can't get out of their own way. Just as las vegas profits off of people who can't make bad decisions and so people who can't make good decisions rather so i I don't know i i that's kind of how i think about this
0: i'd throw a caveat in on that just for you to think about which is the idea that you might have people that are going to zero in their options account but if that is their play money um, and they've got an account somewhere else that is right that's
1: okay, it, maybe yeah. yes, so
0: you could be it's hard to get the full picture, yep, um, and which is one of the reasons why it's hard to say that the government is going to make a good choice in regulating on this front. Um I do think you're right. there's more money to be made on the options trading side. I think it's worth noting payment for order flow is uh much more important on the options side. Um, and is a much more lucrative uh, part of a brokerage's uh, cash flow on, on the options side than it is on the equity side. And I think that there are some guardrails in place with respect to ensuring that folks that are gaining options access are, in fact, the folks that meet the criteria set out in regulation for doing so already. Um, whether that regulation should be there or not is a question for another time, but we do have things that address some of those issues. And the question is, is that even being complied with?
1: Um, we've covered everything I had on, on my list of topics for today. Um, could you let our listeners know if they want more of you, where can they find you, find your research, find your papers, you know, like how could people access more of your brain?
0: Sure. So all of my papers um, are available on the Cato Institute's website, which is www.cato.org. There is a page there on the scholars specifically for me that contains all of my written work. Uh, I am also on... Twitter I kind of refuse to call it X uh, at uh, Jennifer J Shulp um, and I post there I post on LinkedIn and obviously follow me with my name on LinkedIn um, and maybe when this comes out I just set up a blue sky account so I am JJ Schulp on blue Sky as well and uh, maybe that's another place to find me
1: could be. All right. Um, well, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time today. This was a wonderful discussion. I mean, I, I, I loved hearing your point of view on all these topics, and um, we will be back with more soon.